Amen. <clears throat> if you haven't already, please open up your Bibles to Psalm 22. Uh, this is where we're going to be today. Uh, but before we jump into this uh, wonderful psalm, I, I, I want to begin this morning by playing a little trivia game with you. And the category is literature. Um, here's the game. I'm, I'm going to give you the first sentence of a work of literature, and then you're going to try to guess the name of the work based solely upon the first sentence, all right? So you can call out. We're, we're going to interact a little bit here, all right? Now, these are definitely well-known pieces of literature, and in addition, I only chose books that I have personally read, so that kind of narrows the field a little bit. All right, so we're just going to start by just, I'm going to give the first sentence, and you once you know it, call it out, all right? All right, here's the first one. In a hole in the ground, there lived a, oh, my word. Stop. I didn't even get it out. <laughs> in a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. Somebody already yelled it out. That's pretty easy, right? Just want to make sure your brains were working. It's the hobbit. All right. <laughs> Maybe if I just get the first word out, people are going <laughs> to. Second one, Mr. and Mrs. Dursley. <laughs> Harry Potter. I, didn't, I knew I didn't have to finish that one. That's Harry Potter. That's the first, first few words of the very first Harry Potter. All right, here's the third one. All children except one grow up. Peter Pan. Nice. Y'all are doing pretty good, and you're learning that I only read children's books. All right, now we're just going to get a little tougher here. Fourth one, when he was nearly 13, my brother Jim got his arm badly broken at the elbow to kill a mockingbird. There you go, classic. That was the, that was the first book that inspired my love for reading. That one did it when I was about sixth grade. And here's the last one. It was a bright, cold day in April, and the clocks were striking 13. It got harder. That one is 1984. It's a book by George Orwell. Only reason that I read that book was because my freshman year in high school, I was in the play. I was, dra I, I was in drama, and I was the main antagonist, if you're familiar with that book, named O'Brien um, in that play, in a big school play that year. But that's the only reason I read that one. Well, I played that game with you this morning uh, for a reason. When you heard Andrew read the first line of Psalm 22, you should have immediately thought to yourself, I've heard that before. I know that first line from somewhere. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We know that Jesus was on the cross for about six hours on a Friday, from about 9 a.m. until 3 p.m., and during those six hours, he made seven statements from the cross. Three of the statements he made during the first three hours that he was on the cross. After the Roman soldiers had nailed him to the cross and placed him upright for all to see, 
Shortly after that, he made his first statement. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then sometime later, during those first three hours, the thieves who were crucified on either side of Jesus began debating who Jesus was. And one of the thieves humbled himself and asked Jesus to remember him. And Jesus responded, today, you'll be with me in paradise. And then after some time, he looked down at two of the closest people in his life, his mother Mary and his beloved disciple John. And he said, woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. So during these first three hours, as he hung on the cross, He was interacting with others. He was forgiving soldiers. He was saving thieves. He was caring for his mother. And then at 12, at noon on that Friday, something happened. From 9 till 12, the sun was shining But at noon, a great darkness covered the land. And it lasted for the next three hours. And it was during this time that scholars believe that Jesus was made sin for us. Paul would so eloquently describe what happened during these three hours of darkness In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, he wrote, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. James Montgomery Boyce was a theologian, and he suggested that the darkness was sent by the Father to shield Jesus during these hours when to use the prophet Isaiah's words, the iniquity of us all was laid upon him. Because these were private hours. Jesus had to carry the weight and the burden of all of our sins alone. The gospel accounts tell us that it was toward the end of these three hours when Jesus would make his final statements from the cross. And his fourth statement is the first line of Psalm 22. My God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? And just like during the trivia game we played earlier, when I read the first line to you and you knew what work of literature I was talking about, when Jesus uttered these words, the first line of a well-known Psalm of David, those who have ears to hear, would know what Jesus was thinking, what Jesus was meditating upon during these last hours. It's unbelievable, really. 
It's too much information. It's more than we should be allowed to know. The thoughts of Jesus while he hung on the cross bearing the weight of our sin. It's just too intimate. The words of this psalm are too holy for our ears. Yet here they are. God had chosen David, the man after his own heart, the warrior poet, to write these words for his son to have during the darkest hours of his life when he was in so much pain that words failed him. We could easily meditate upon these words for the rest of our lives and not have enough time. In fact, during the 19th century, there was a pastor who preached a 31-week sermon series to his church each week focusing just on one verse of this psalm. Now, we're not going to do that. But it shows the, the, the wealth and the richness and the importance of these words. It's so important for us to think about the cross. John Stott was an English scholar who wrote these words, I could never believe in God were it not for the cross. In a world of pain, who could worship a God who was immune to it? God stepped into our world of pain and suffering, and that's the God for me. If I was stranded on a deserted island and could only have certain portions of Scripture with me, I would want Psalm 22 because without a doubt, it is the best description of Jesus Christ's crucifixion in all the Bible. And it was written almost a thousand years before it happened. In fact, when David wrote these words, crucifixion as a form of execution had not even been invented yet. In addition, scholars have never been able to pinpoint this psalm as describing an actual experience in the life of David. The description of these words is of a man dying by crucifixion. In his Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2, the apostle Peter called David, I love these words, he called David a prophet who could see what was ahead. And Psalm 22 is an example of that. It's an example of David being able to see what was ahead. Get this, Psalm 22 gives us 22 prophetic details that correspond to the New Testament. It's a psalm of prophecy. It's a messianic psalm. And let's look at this psalm together this morning. Back in the fall of 2020, 
I did a a six-week series on lament. And as we look at Psalm 22, it's important to note that this psalm takes the form of a lament. It's good to understand lament and to know that kind of the traditional form of a lament because that gives us great insight into this psalm. The prophet David, who could see what was ahead, goes through the four parts of lament in this psalm, giving Jesus the the words to pray while on the cross. If you recall, the four parts of lament can be described in this way, pain, protest, petition, praise. And we're going to just kind of walk through those four parts this morning as we look at, as we meditate upon Psalm 22. The first part is pain. This is where it starts. Lament begins with a decision to come to God with our pain. According to the gospel accounts, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, which means my God, my God. The doubled my God, my God is unique in all the Bible. And it indicates two things. First, it emphasizes the intensity of this prayer. And then second, it emphasizes the recipient of this prayer. There is no question. In his darkest hour, Jesus directs his prayer to God. The second part of lament is protest. Life provides us with so many questions. And in the protest stage of lament, we ask our hard, uncomfortable questions to God. Through lament, God gives us permission and encourages us even to complain to him, to bring our complaints, to bring our protests. God wants us to ask these genuine, heartfelt questions about the most painful feelings in our life to him. You see, in our lives, there's often going to be a tension that's created between who God is and how we feel. And it's through this protest, it's through this complaint part of lament that we're choosing to address this tension by asking God our questions, sharing with him our frustrations. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from hearing me? Why are you so far from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. I cry out by night. I am not silent. Jesus on the cross, feels a distance and a silence between himself and the Father that he's never felt before. He's never experienced this before until this period of darkness on the cross. In John chapter 10 and verse 30, the Jews picked up stones to stone Jesus because he described his relationship with the Father in this way. He said, I and the Father are one. 
In other words, there is no distance between them. Yet from the cross, Jesus says, I and the Father are not one. It's distance. He felt this distance that he'd never experienced before. In John chapter 11, verses 41 and 42, at the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. In fact, I know that you always hear me. In other words, there's never any silence between them. Yet from the cross, Jesus says, you do not answer. I come to you day and night, and there's silence. Look, we know that the Father had not forsaken his Son. But what Jesus was feeling on the cross is real. It's the distance and the silence caused by the separation of our sin. He's feeling the consequences of being made into our sin. He's feeling the effects of the iniquity of us all being laid upon him. You see, one who is living in sin only knows distance and silence when it comes to God. And Jesus is feeling the weight of all the distance and of all the silence, of all the broken relationships caused by sin. And he brings all of those feelings to God. The third part of lament is petition. This is where we cry out to God from our place. Our, our, our personal pain, our, our personal struggle leads each one of us to a certain place. The pain that you experience in life takes you to a, a place. The struggle that I've experienced in my life takes me to a certain place. And the place where our pain takes us is unique to each one of our situations. But each one of us are encouraged to cry out to God from our specific place. And Psalm 22 reveals to us, again, these words are just too holy for our ears. But it reveals to us the specific petition that Jesus had from his place on the cross. Remember, in his protest, he had asked God twice, why are you so far from me? So now listen to the holy words of Jesus' petition on the cross. Verse 11. He says, do not be far from me. For trouble is near. And there's no one to help me. Let those words sink into your soul. Jesus' petition 
his request from the cross. Jesus cried out to God from that place of distance and silence. And then the fourth part of lament is praise. It's praise. The words but or yet are found in every lament. And it's a very important word because it marks the moment in the lament where pain and trust coexist. God, here's my pain, here are my questions, here's my petition, but I'm going to choose to trust you. Not because you take away my pain or answer my questions or respond to my request. I'm going to choose to trust you because you are God. Psalm 22 shows us that Jesus brings what he knows to bear upon what he feels. He brings what he knows to be true about God to bear upon the horrible realities of the cross. And in that process, he chooses to trust his father through the problem. We don't have time this morning to go through, line by line, the description of the crucifixion in this psalm. They are vivid and they are horrific. Yet, you'll find three times in this psalm these wonderful declarations of faith in among the suffering that begin with, but you. It's, re- it's this remarkable pattern, terrible descriptions of the crucifixion, then, but you. You see one in verse 3, verse 9, and then in verse 19. And it seems like with each statement, the intensity of his suffering decreases and the clarity of his faith increases. And I think there's so much for us to learn from this pattern. I want to read through these three statements with you this morning, beginning with the one in verse 3. He says, But you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In our fathers, in you our fathers put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. He remembers God's faithfulness to others in the past. And then in verse 9, he says, but you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth, I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb, you've been my God. Here in this section, he remembers God's faithfulness to him, to him in the past. So in the first section, he remembered God's faithfulness to others in the past. In this section, he remembers God's faithfulness to him in the, in, in the past. And then in verse 19, he says, But you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouths of lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. So here, he recognizes God's faithfulness to him in the present. 
And we would do well to imitate this pattern when we find ourselves in a difficult place of suffering. Remember God's faithfulness to others in the past. Remember God's faithfulness to us in the past. And then also to even recognize his faithfulness to us in the present, even during our hard time. And going through this process, it weakens the intensity of our suffering and it strengthens the clarity of our faith. And this leads us to praise. Look, at the the end of verse 21, a sudden dramatic change takes place. In the, in the actual Hebrew, the verb is held back until last. So a, a more literal translation of verse 21 is, rescue me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the ram. You have saved me. Or you might notice the footnote in most of your Bibles will say that that, that last verb can also be translated, you have heard me. Or you have answered me. So however it should be translated, you have saved me, you have heard me, you have answered me. This is the turning point of the psalm. Despite how he felt, Jesus knew that his father had answered him. Listen, he he proclaims this truth in verse 24. And it's thus on the mind of Christ on the cross. Verse 24, for he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. So you'll notice the contrast is too hard to, it's too much to miss. The rest of this psalm is dedicated to praising God rather than to imploring God. At the end of verse 21, the cry of help changes to a cry of praise. At the end of verse 21, the complaint turns to celebration. And the praise, it's really awesome to just kind of follow through these 10 verses because we see the praise expand. It's kind of this expansion of this praise. It begins with the descendants of Jacob and Israel, begins with the Jews in verse 23. And then it expands to the ends of the earth and all the families of the nations in verse 27. And then it expands to future generations in verse 30. That's you and me. And then... If that wasn't enough, it even expands to people yet unborn. Verse 31. It reminds me of when Jesus, following his resurrection from the dead, would commission his disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, to be witnesses of the kingdom of God in Jerusalem to the Jews, then to Judea, then to Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And here, this praise, this celebration, this this message of the cross is to be taken to the descendants of Jacob, to the ends of the earth, to all the families of the nations, 
and to future generations who will then proclaim it to people yet unborn. And here is the message of the cross that's to be taken, that is to be expanded in this way. It's at the end of verse 31. Perhaps the best summation of the message of the cross in all the Bible, he has done it. Jesus Christ has done it. And if the last line of this psalm also rings a bell, it's because Jesus also spoke these words on the cross right before he died when he cried out, it is finished. He has done it. He has completed it. He has finished the task. The suffering of one has provided salvation for many. I, uh, I, uh, I heard a story a while back, and I wanted to share it with you this morning. Uh, I, <clears throat> I heard it from a pastor and author. His name is Skip Heitzig. You might be familiar with him. Um, But I heard him tell this story one time, and I wanted to share with you this morning. It's a great story. It's it's about a group of soldiers in World War II. Uh, A group was fighting on the front lines, and, and one of them was sadly killed. And so two of his buddies didn't want to just leave him there. And so they found a church that had a churchyard or a cemetery right next to it. And so they went to the clergyman and asked if they could bury their dead friend in the churchyard. And the clergyman said, I'm, I'm very sorry. I wish you could. But, you know, because he wasn't a member of this church and not part of our denomination, he, he can't be buried in our churchyard. Well, he, he could sense the disappointment um, of the soldiers. And so he said, look, bury him just outside the fence. It's close enough, but, but it's not inside, just, just right outside. And so they did. They spent the rest of the day, dug a hole, buried him. And they got up the next morning to go back to the battle, but, but said, you know, before we go, let's go back. And then pay our respects one last time, visit the grave they had dug yesterday. So they went to the churchyard, but they couldn't find the grave. It had vanished. It wasn't there. They searched all around the perimeter of the fence. They couldn't find it. So they went to the clergyman and said, look, we just want to visit our buddy's grave one last time before we go back to the battle, but we can't find it. Clergyman said, you know, when I went to bed last night, I couldn't, couldn't sleep very well. And so I got up, and I moved the fence. I moved the fence to include the body of your friend 
within the cemetery. I love that story. And I love the line of the clergyman. I move the fence. Because it resonates with this idea. It resonates with the praise at the end of this psalm. It resonates with this idea of the expansion of the kingdom. Jesus has been moving the fence ever since the cross. There's always room for one more in the kingdom of God. Every time you share the good news of Psalm 22 with someone else, you're moving the fence. And if you're here this morning and you've never responded to the message of the cross, dear friend, did you know that there's room for you? He has done it. Jesus Christ has gained your salvation by his suffering. The work of Christ on the cross is the perfect and final sacrifice for your sin. You see, the problem is not the sufficiency of Christ. The problem is your self-sufficiency. The problem is you want to be in control of your life. The problem is your heart says, I want to do it. But the message of the cross is he has done it. And there is room for you. Turn from your sins Turn to the Lord and put your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this psalm. Wow. These words, as I've said, are uh, what a gift to us. What a gift to us. What a gift they were to your son in his darkest hour. What a gift they are to us. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the suffering of the one that has provided salvation for the many. Lord, we give you praise. We we join, we join in. We join in with the celebration and the praise for what was accomplished on the cross for us. We join in and praise you. And we proclaim it. We proclaim it so that future generations will know about it. We give you praise, give you glory. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and continue in that praise and celebration this morning.